Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network, and today we're joined by author Jeannie Safer. She is a psychoanalyst who's had a private clinical practice for over 45 years, and she's joining us today to discuss her latest book. It's her seventh book, and it's entitled, I Love You, But I Hate Your Politics, How to Protect Your Intimate Relationships in a Poisonous Partisan World. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Delighted to be with you, Aaron. But, you know, actually, the title of the book should be, I love you, but I hate your politics. <laughs> oh, well, th- there are some big, bold words on the cover there. <laughs> yes. And love is one of them. <laughs> and so, hate is the other. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see what triumphs. Um, uh, hopefully, well, hopefully, the point of the book was to get more, more love than hate going in these relationships. Well, in the age of Trump, as we call it, I am. Uh, you couldn't have picked a worse time to talk about love and, and politics. Actually, I think it's the opposite. It's it's the best time to talk about it. So, why on earth to, does this book come out when it's coming out? <laughs> well, um, it was something that was many years in formation since I am married to someone who is on the other side politically, and I have been married to him for forty forty years. Yeah. And uh, I had to learn how to live with somebody who didn't agree with me fundamentally. He's not a Trump supporter, but he is senior editor of National Review and and conservative. And we really disagree on virtually everything in terms of policy. I mean, the biggest is abortion, but there there are plenty of things. And we had to find a way to um, let love prevail over frustration. I mean, well... I I have to put it another way. Rick was never the problem. He he gave it the office. He had plenty of people to talk to. He's not a a, a uh, he's not a, a Trumpy kind of person. He's not uh, obnoxious and and he doesn't have to push his opinions. But I, you know, I change people's minds for a living. That's what I do professionally. So of course I thought that I could change his. Doesn't that isn't that rational? <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I wasn't incredibly obnoxious about it, but I just felt like, you know, I knew the truth and that all I had to do was show him the error of his ways. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating too much, Ian. I mean, this is how people think. Well, it Uh, makes sense. People change all the time as long as you talk to them enough. As long as you tell them (laughs) what they should think, right? So so for the first few years of our marriage, I really made efforts to do this. And, of course, they were completely hopeless and made – you know, made for frustration. And Now, fortunately, we really did have virtually everything else in common. Um, We met in a group that sings Renaissance religious music on street corners for free on the streets of New York. So we had we had a lot of unusual things in common. Um, but at a certain point, I realized that this was hopeless. I really should not do this. I shouldn't try to do it. Uh, and I should accept him as he was because he accepted me as I was. 
and we had virtually everything else worked for us. And that that was the basis of my understanding of why political fights are disastrous. Uh, it's it's my own experience. And uh, and then people, uh, you know, I've written. Rick and I both have written about this together many times. And so people started calling me for advice uh, about this because they were ready to get divorced, or their children weren't talking to them, or they weren't talking to their parents, or they lost their best friend of forty years. And I'm not kidding. All of these things are true, and it's shocking. You know, and people just didn't know what to do. And I, I offered what I presented as a simple solution, which nobody took. Okay? <laughs> that solution is don't talk about politics. You know, zipper your lip. And nobody could do it. They had to try to keep getting in there and changing the other person's mind. And, uh, you know, as a psychologist, I, I knew that you never could change somebody's mind by showing them the error of their ways. Doesn't work. Well, sometimes it sounds like a simple prescription. The idea of not talking about politics it's not simple. sounds pretty easy. Oh, no, it's not easy. <laughs> in the, in, on the surface. Yes. But especially today, and this comes from the left and the right, so much of what we might otherwise have in common that at first blush doesn't seem political is, in fact, tinged with political allegiances. You know, what kinds of movies do you like? What kinds of um, entertainment that you enjoy. And, and so in some ways, even, you know, the most dedicated person who wants love to triumph <laughs> is put in a difficult spot by trying to somehow avoid politics. Oh, absolutely. So, because politics has also become very central to our identity in a way that it didn't used to be. Uh, my parents were of different political parties. I never heard them have a political fight. Uh, but now, because I think in a way, politics has, to some degree, taken the, the role of religion, taken over that role in identity. And a lot of people, you probably haven't gone on a dating app recently, <laughs> but let me tell you that on these things, the first thing that's, that people write is what their political affiliation is. They don't put down their religion, and they won't right. even consider calling anybody or, or making a date with anybody who doesn't agree with them. So we're all in these kind of pods, you know, of, of agreement. And I think this makes it a lot harder to ever find any kind of way to have a decent conversation with somebody on the other side that doesn't turn into a fight. Because that's one of that's and that's one of the things that's that's very important in you know in this book that that I'm not saying you should never talk about politics. I'm saying that you have to learn, if you're talking to somebody who's on the other side, you have to learn ways to do that so it doesn't devolve into a screaming match. And there are ways to do that, but it takes self-control and self-awareness and self-restraint, really. You know, you can't start a conversation with, how could your side think such and such? It's not going to work. You can't start with your spouse sticking an article in their face at the breakfast table and saying, read this, this will change your mind. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people do this. I made up a term well, for it. I call it article thrusting, sticking an article or you know a, a website or whatever in somebody's face to make them change their mind. Yeah, that does it every time. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's 100% <laughs> effective. <laughs> but it's so, amazing how people are stuck in these patterns. Really amazing. 
Well, we began this conversation referring to your own personal experience. And as you know, that's part of the inspiration for the book. But really, this is not a memoir. You address your own history at the end of the book. Um, but really, this is a book about uh, what I gather is really kind of your clinical experience uh, in talking with people who, as you said, uh, people contact you. Now, why was it that people were triggered to contact you in particular? You had written something that was published. I, um, I wrote a ton of things about this, and so did Rick. And we wrote things together for all kinds of publications. And But wasn't uh, there something in a major newspaper at one point that well, really uh, got people? Well, yeah, um, about, oh, I guess it was two months ago, um, I was interviewed for the Wall Street Journal. And this really opened the floodgates for people saying, help, I don't know what to do. I'm about to get divorced. Or this guy I wanted to marry, suddenly, you know, it, it was really something. The desperation is quite something. Uh, I, I had several sessions recently with a couple. They're, I don't know, maybe they're in their 70s, whose uh, son and daughter-in-law have decided that they cannot see their grandchildren because they voted for Trump. And these people called me in desperation. They said, we don't want to talk about Trump. We want to see our grandchildren. And, but the, 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 the son and daughter were such that they wouldn't allow them. So, I, 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 so after I saw a lot of this and people were writing to me, well, I'll tell you that <laughs> my favorite person who wrote to me, and th th this is what I, in a way inspired me to do a book on this, not just articles and you know appearances and stuff about it. This charming guy, he was charming in his letter. He said, I'm writing you because I'm in a desperate situation. I just met the woman of my dreams. He said, I've had a lot of bad relationships. I had a couple of failed marriages, but she is really the woman for me. And she's a, she's a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm a, a proud supporter of Trump. But what happened is they started to go out. I think she knew that he was a Republican. I don't know if she knew that he was a Trump supporter. And she happened to see the bumper of his car. This is in the book. You probably, I mean, they remember it. And he had a bumper sticker on that car that was, <laughs> pardon my French here, this is what he said, was a picture of Trump urinating on Hillary. Okay? This is it's the- very charming. Oh, yes. It's a charming this visual. Hilarious. This was the- <laughs> In every way, Trump. Um, this was he, he said, this is a joke. You know, it's on my car. Well, she was ready to leave town. When she saw this. She was outraged. And he said, it's a joke. And she said, if you really love me, you'll take it off. So he writes to me and said, I really do love her. What should I do? And I said, take it off. Civility rules. And he did. I don't and know. that's the amazing part of that story. That is the amazing <laughs> part of this story. This guy saw that, you know, that she saw it very differently than he did. And she meant a lot to him and he wanted to make it work. And she then wrote me and said, this is so wonderful. I, it, it showed me something about his character that is the reason I love him. Because he heard me. Isn't it interesting how politics is really psychology, you know, the fact that he that he agreed to do something because it, she knew he knew that it hurt her was what mattered to her. So you have mentioned earlier about um, politics in in some ways kind of is similar to its function that religion used to yes. play in people's lives. Yes, and uh, I suppose it doesn't take much insight to 
when you see the decline of religiosity uh, in terms of organized religion right. and perhaps the rise of a substitute, uh, it, it doesn't take much to imagine that this is, in fact, the substitute. It is. It is. But at the same time, uh, I know it's become more acute and we can talk about the Trump period uh, per se and response to that. But this is really an age old problem, isn't it? it in other words, uh, you met your husband uh, 40 some years ago. And, and so you have your political differences then. Um, is you, you were dealing with uh, mostly romantic couples, but you also address friends. In other words, friendship oh, yeah. and the political and differences. And uh, children, this is, all kinds of people. Right. It's right. terrible and, in families, awful in families. I think worse than romantic relationships, actually, because and, and I was these people, you know. <laughs> right. Sure enough. I mean, you use because they're blood, you supposedly have to love them. Yeah, right. <laughs> and but at the same time, I was struck by there was a um, older couple of gentlemen who are friends. Um, yeah, uh, they're they're platonic yes, Harry, friends. Harry and, and what, uh, yeah, oh, they were great. <laughs> And what I was struck by about their relationship, and I wonder if this is something that can be utilized in romantic relationships, is the fact that they deployed humor to really good effect with each other. Um, brilliant. And I want, they were brilliant. And I wonder if that's possible uh, I think for romantic un- relationships. I think they unusual uh, self-awareness, and they had a long, long relationship. They had been uh, friends, a couple friends. Their wives had died. Uh, and they had, but they were, they knew each other maybe 20, 30 years. But of course, you can know somebody 30 years and then, and then break up, uh, you know, because of politics. But they really, they hit certain rules of engagement. They never raised their voices. Uh, they knew, you know, I was talking about article thrusting before. They understood how to, to talk to each other and show each other their own ideas in ways that I've never seen before. One of them wrote a note to the other one. Saying one, one of the guys was about 80, the other was in his late 70s. Um, very articulate. They were delightful. Um, he said, uh, Harry, uh, I have an article about, I guess it was climate change, that I'd like you to read. Now, um, it, it, it matters to me. I think it, it lays out my position very well. And of course, listen to this, of course, I will read something that you send me. How do you like that? And that makes the difference. It's a it's All a respect difference. and a reciprocity. All the difference. He wasn't saying he was not article thrusting. Read this; it'll change your mind, you idiot. No. <laughs> um, and this is what they did. Uh, these were the only people that did that <laughs> that I interviewed. Uh, and I thought it was a real model. Also, people learned not to talk about politics. Or what's important to me as a psychologist is that a lot of the uh, the worst political fights, which are not political discussions, of course, they're screaming matches usually pretty quickly, were really, if you look closely at them, they weren't about uh, political ideas. They were about the wish to change the other person's mind, the desperate need to change someone's mind, the outrage that this person doesn't agree with you and doesn't see the error of their ways. These are the things that get us in real trouble and make these fights go on every day for people. You know, we're not talking about an occasional uh, political altercation often. These are things that are bitter. They become enraged. Uh, they have sometimes relationships end because of it. Do you think, and I know Trump may be a special case at this t- point in time, but do you think that uh, 
political differences between friends and romantic couples have increased in frequency over the years that you've been in practice? I think so. I think so. Um, Trump brings out more of this than any other president has. I mean, look, I, I was around in 1968, and I know what it was like. I was in Chicago, in fact. I was at the University of Chicago, uh, where where things were going totally crazy about politics. But th- it wasn't all the time everybody. You know what I mean? And, and, it, and it ended with the war ending. This is, you cannot avoid a political conversation uh, in in most in most social circles, you can't. Uh, and one of the things, one of the reasons I wrote this book was to teach people how they could deal with it, how they could get out of it, how you know how they could understand it, so that they wouldn't just do terrible damage to their relationships. And what I always, well, actually, in the book I finished with it, but what I always start with is. Uh, is our two Supreme Court justices who seem to manage this, right? Ginsburg and Scalia. They didn't agree on one thing, except they were beloved friends for years. And I always say to people, if they could do it, can't we? Well, I, when I was asking that question about the increase in prevalence, I, I was thinking about years ago, about 30-some years ago now, uh, my undergraduate, uh, Walter Cronkite, came to speak, and he was talking about the rise of cable news, ah. and he was lamenting that the big three, CBS, ABC, and NBC, uh, were losing uh, out to these uh, silos of uh, cable news, and that people were only going to tune in to the news that they wanted to hear. Boy, was that prescient. Uh, that it, it at the time though I remember dismissing it. I thought, well, more variety is actually going to be helpful. People can right. inform themselves <laughs> so through the left wing view and the and the right wing view. So and <laughs> and I, I take pride in trying to do that myself. You know, I read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and and I want to see the different perspectives. But uh, I think you're you're right. He was prescient in a way that at the time I didn't realize. Of course, he was he wasn't thinking about the internet. And the internet right. does that in spades, I guess. And so, oh my! Um, as you mentioned in the book, ever happened. <laughs> I'm sorry, say that again. It's the worst thing that ever happened to political discussion: the internet, because you can you can yell and scream and curse people out, and you can do it with impunity. You think, and you lose relationships. You, you know, you end up uh, de- unfriending your grandmother. That's what happens. Terrible. But go ahead. So this this anonymity that the or apparent anonymity yeah. that the web has provided, um, but it as you note is bleeding over into personal relationships beyond the web. Of course, that um, it seems to me, in other words, that the web is kind of an enabling device. It it helps uh, goad you into a fellow feeling that there are other people who see it just like you do, and and it helps. It's kind of a confirmation bias problem. It's also um, disinhibiting. Because you feel you yes. can say anything, you know, and it's okay, you know. Uh, it's I think it's a disaster. I I tell people who are in relationships of whatever kind that are politically mixed, do not read what the other person says online. Do yourself and them a favor. If you want to have a conversation, have a conversation. Doing any writing, talk to them, but don't read what they have to say because you'll have hateful answers, and then they'll have hateful responses. And then you, you know, it, you can lose your relationships. You really can. So 
let's let's go into the self-help part of this a little bit. Yes. What you what are your recommendations then for uh, the various types of relationships people have and ways to help ameliorate or respond to article pushers or the arguments that people habitually seem to fall into? Well, the first thing that I suggest to people is to realize that political conversations are very often not about politics. In fact, they're about trying to change someone's mind. You know, that we can't stand it when somebody disagrees with us. And once you accept, and this is a big deal, this, this takes a lot of maturity and awareness. Once you accept that the other person's mind may change, but not because you change it. It's because they decide to change it. Once you realize that, you can start to have an actual political, political conversation rather than a mind-changing brawl, which doesn't work. Because one of the things that I say to people is you can't make a person change their mind politically any more than you can make somebody love you who doesn't love you, which is something that we all try to do, right? <laughs> certainly as adolescents. So that's my first piece of advice is to recognize that you are not going to succeed if that's what you go in trying to do. And then there are a number of things that you can do in all sorts of relationships. And I have a whole list. I have... 10 lists. It's called the politics doctors. That's me, the politics doctor. (laughs) Her 10 proven ways to stop a political fight before it starts. So here they are. First, don't raise your voice. As soon as you raise your voice, people interpret it as shouting. End of rational conversation. These seem very simple, but if you think about them, they work. (laughs) My second one. (laughs) Friends, do not let friends drink and discuss politics. <laughs> Drinking makes you yeah. makes you raise your voice. <laughs> and and you had a particular example that was oh my god to me it was rather unusual, probably even among couples. <laughs> <laughs> yes, two lovely guys. I know both these men. They're really sweethearts, and they both voted for Trump. Okay, so it's not even that they were on different sides. They had some kind of fight. Um, One of them thought Trump was just a wonderful person and the other one thought he was a jerk, but he had good good political ideas or or plans. And they had they both they both had more than a couple of drinks and they started yelling and screaming and running after each other. And and at the end of this, a marble table was broken and a cell phone was smashed. Hey, this is like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh, my God. <laughs> and well, to their credit, and these are lovely guys, you know, to their credit, they decided never again you know, uh, that politics and drinking do not mix. Boy, is that, a, is that a big thing for people to know? Now, the third one is about article thrusting. Never thrust an unsolicited part, partisan article or a link from your side of a, on a contentious issue to your mate, relative, or friend. Guaranteed to offend. Never changes a mind. Do not stick it in their breakfast plate. Do not, when you, when you meet them, hand it to them. Don't send them the link. Don't do anything like this. And here's another one, which is really difficult, but I think it's probably the biggest one. If you can't talk about it, don't talk about it. 
it seems to me that one is very difficult to follow. If you oh. if you can't talk about it, then don't. That sounds like a, it's a simple rule, but it's because <laughs> politics, as we mentioned, so pervasive today. It's that's uh, it's difficult because you want to, so to speak, let your hair down. Yes. Um, but you can't among your friends. You can't do it with people who really disagree. You have to really say, look, this is something that we have to take off our list because we really disagree about this. We have so many things we can talk about, including political things. Let's not talk about this. And I So people, would a good correlative to that be to find other outlets, that is people who do agree oh, with absolutely. you that with whom Yeah. Absolutely. You don't have to talk to everybody about everything. You know, I don't talk to my husband about certain aspects of politics. He's you know, he talks to everybody at National Review about whatever he wants. You know, um, and this is wise. It really is, because politics is not the same as love. You know, you can agree with somebody and think they're a, a creep. Um, never start any political conversation with the following. Write this down. How can you I possibly think? <laughs> Don't do it. The person won't believe you anyway, and you'll just offend them. Right. Yeah. Now, here's something that people don't think about and that I think is very important. If you have a friend or a spouse or a relative or somebody you care about who disagrees with you, if, that, if you're in, in company with that person and people attack that person's beliefs, you must, you are duty bound to defend them. Never allow it. And I'll give you an example of why I, why I wrote this. A number of years ago, my husband accompanied me to a, a meeting of psychoanalysts. It was some kind of breakfast thing. And um, I didn't know the people, most of them. But um, a guy came up to Rick, who was this guy, was a colleague of mine who didn't know me really closely, and said, said to my husband, oh, so you work for William F. Buckley. You must be a crypto-Nazi which is one of the slurs that was used against Buckley often. And Rick laughed it off. His wife did not laugh it off. <laughs> I said to this man, that is a serious accusation. It's not true. And I want you to apologize to my husband right now. And he said, oh, I was just kidding. And I said, I want an apology to him for being offensive about something that matters. And he did it. I believe in that. Right. No. Because, and this gets to one of the points you make in the book, which is that in the long run, friendship should triumph these political differences. Absolutely. You're, absolutely. Never let anybody say hateful and obnoxious things about somebody you love. It's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, do, uh, and another there, one. Go ahead. The, before you go on to your next uh, point, I, it reminds me, um, Arthur Brooks, who was head of American Enterprise oh, yeah, Institute sure. for years, he's written a lot about... Um, trying to maintain the ability, uh, not so much among friends or personal friendships, but although he includes uh, those kinds of relationships, but the maintaining openness of communication between the left and the right and how it was personally offensive to him uh, to hear his some of his fellow conservatives uh, deride others as just complete idiots. Yeah. And, um, and he thought, you know, Unfortunately, people on the other side think the same about us. Uh, we need to try to reduce this uh, reductionism that people who disagree with you are simply to be vilified and defined outside of legitimate political discourse. They, they have their own ideas. They have their convictions. And although you might disagree with them, what's important is maintaining civil relations 
and true friendships across these uh, political lines. Well, of course, but he's a voice in the wilderness, honestly. I mean, I'm another voice in the wilderness, but, you know, people just love to get to mix this up. They really do. And they do vilify and demonize the other side. They really do. It's hard for some people, for instance, to believe that anybody who voted for Trump could be a decent person. <laughs> or, or anybody who didn't vote for Trump could, could be not an idiot. You know, it really goes that far. Um, and actually, that, that's one of the points I make, which is assume decency and goodwill in your opponent, even if you passionately disagree. That's essential because that's what comes across. You know, if you know that you revere each other or esteem each other, you could talk about things. You know, I had a couple of conversations with uh, the uh, uh, editor of National Review about the Kavanaugh hearings. He said, what do you think about it? You know, and I, and I told him, I said, I know you won't agree with this, but this is what I think. And, you know, we were perfectly civil. You can be. And But it takes practice. Yes. And the last and most important is recognize that political fights, that's not political conversation, political fights are unwinnable. You are not going to win. If that's what you're trying to do, you will, you will ruin your relationships. You really will. And so, although those are, as you say yourself, these are salient and helpful points, they're, they're very difficult to implement. Well, um, first of all, you have to realize that you've got a problem with these things. I mean, I, I had a, a couple come to, to see me about this, and um, I was talking about article thrusting to them. And she said, oh, I do that every morning. I said, stop it right now. <laughs> and she did. It was amazing. <laughs> I didn't know I had such power, but she did. Which I think and, right away, well, now that was one. Uh, listeners might enjoy this story. Anyway, uh, this is a couple. They, they were, oh, I guess in their late 60s. Both had advanced degrees. Um, and they had been both pretty far left when they were younger. He had become a conservative, partially because he started to relate more to his father. And she felt a sense of awful betrayal from this. That he didn't, she didn't see that this had nothing to do with her. It was, she was just outraged by this. She wasn't ready to divorce him, but she just was furious about it. So one of the things he would do is go, they had a three-story uh, house. He would go into the basement and listen to Fox News. And she was enraged about this. She said, how could you do this? It pollutes the air. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And he said, well, I don't listen to it very much. And I said, isn't this why God invented headphones? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, he's allowed. It's his house, too. What are you doing? <laughs> and I said, you've got to stop this. You know, he, you have a right to your ideas and he has a right to his. And, and, you know, and also they had an excellent marriage in many ways. They'd been through a lot of difficult things. And I said, one of the things that really struck me about this guy is that he may have been listening to Fox News, but they had a child who had difficulties at some point. And they made, he made her brother, this child's uh, guardian. The brother was a member of CPUSA, Communist Party, right? And he thought enough of this guy's character to make him the godfather of his child. I said, this guy isn't a bigot. 
Isn't that, is so, that extraordinary? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, and and you feature several of these stories. Uh, the one I remember in particular is the uh, the family that was very politically oriented, except for one uncle who yes, turned out yes. to be uh, probably the best person of the lot. And uh, one of the nieces recognized this over time. Oh, yes. And she apologized to this guy. She was doing one of the things. She's a friend, young friend of mine um, and wonderful, very smart and very sensitive, as you can tell from what she did. Um, she used to fight with him online. She called him a troglodyte. I don't know, but that's the nicest thing she called him. <laughs> he is yeah, it, it always works with me. <laughs> that really I know endears me too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but the whole family was very left, except for him. He had become a religious Christian, and he moved to the South. And anyway, um, when her father died, he was the only one that helped her. He dropped everything, came, did everything with her. And to her enormous credit, she gave him a profound apology. She said, you were the only one who showed up. I apologize for the way I have treated you. You were my true uncle. And she really did it right. And I was very impressed and proud of her for doing that. It's very rare. Sure, sure. And as we've noted, um, this is kind of rare. Uh, my pessimistic take on this, I'm curious what you think about this, is there's no sign that this is uh, going to get any better. Um, Trump, as a particular phenomenon, may leave the scene. He may come back later. But uh, just these political differences... It seems the infrastructure of American life is such that it's hard to change the trend oh, because, God. as we've read for years, uh, people are self-selecting in a variety of ways, not just uh, where they get their news, but also where they live. Yes. Uh, the If they do go to church, uh, they sometimes go to what is known as a politically liberal versus a politically conservative church. <sighs> uh, even if it's in the same um, denomination uh, right. that the, the ministers or the whoever presides oh, at the absolutely. services. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is true. Um, well, one of the couples that I interviewed were very interesting people. They were both uh, evangelical Christians, and they belonged to the same church, only she was in the liberal part of it. He was in the conservative part of it. <laughs> same church, same minister, everything. And they were the ones that gave me a wonderful piece of advice. They said the, they were the source of don't shout. No, don't, don't raise your voice. People will interpret it as shouting. You can't talk. And this is from their own experience of learning not to shout at each other. Right, and they were on the in, in the same church on different sides, you know. But they also really admired each other, and 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 one of the things she told me there was a wonderful story. Just the two of them, she said, "I admire him so much, and I think he's so thoughtful and such a good person that I actually have a soft spot in my heart for Republicans now." <laughs> <laughs> now I can't say I've gone that far. <laughs> I certainly know plenty of Republicans uh, and, and conservatives who uh, were better friends to me in certain hours of need than people who agreed with me. It's, uh, and I, and I, I talk about this at length in the book, about showing up as the most important moral virtue. Well, you call it the chemotherapy test. Yes. Yes, the chemotherapy test. This was actually uh, a, a um, way of looking at something that my husband uh, created. His idea was, and since we had both through, been through cancer, he said, 
when you are lying in bed getting chemotherapy, you do not ask the political affiliation of the person standing next to you getting you through it. That's the chemotherapy test showing up. And I thought that was a wonderful uh, way of saying it because that's when you find out who your true friends are. And I have to tell you, some of them may not agree with you politically. Right. So although we might have some pessimism based on larger societal or demographic trends, the self-selecting we talked about earlier, does the response that you've received where people are worried about their relationships and friendships give you a glimmer of hope? Yes, it does. And also, I had so many experiences because I've been kind of the liberal mascot of National Review for many years, 40 years, I guess. And the people at National Review were just magnificent to me when I was ill. Um, and I never forgot it. They didn't have to. Uh, and it really, it really touched me. And so this is also private personal experience that says these things. Uh, yes, I think it is possible. And as I said, as, as uh, Ginsburg and Scalia could do it, mere mortals can too. Uh, it takes work and it's worth it. It's really worth it. You don't want to lose a friendship with somebody because they voted for somebody else. Uh, those things are, I mean, they, they're important, but they're not, they're not life and death the way loyalty is, the way appreciation is, the way the human values are. It's not the same thing. We mix up politics with, with character, and they don't belong together necessarily. There are lots of people who agree with me that I can't stand. <laughs> and lots of people who disagree with me that I love and esteem. And I think that's good. Well, let's try to end it on a happy note. The book is I Love You, But I Hate yes. Your Politics. <laughs> And we've been joined today by its author, Jeannie Safer. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Delighted to be with you, and I hope it changes some minds.